Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Right Carrot Baptist. I am your co-host, Dr. Jake Lancaster, your Chief Medical Information Officer, here with Dr. Henry Sullivan, our Chief Medical Officer, and today we will be interviewing James Grantham. James, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. First of all, I'm the CEO of two of Baptist's hospitals, but I'm also the Clinical Service Administrator for all of Baptist. So I have responsibility over lab and respiratory therapy. And my background, I started with Baptist in 1998 as a med tech. So my uh, clinically trained as a medical technologist and also a, an administrator with Baptist. All right. And Henry, can you tee us up for today about what topics we want to cover and, and why we brought James in to talk about? James, James is truly our lab expert for the system. And James understands uh, the, the particulars around various lab tests. Uh, he works closely with all of our reference labs that we use, in particular AEL, uh, laboratory service that we use. And we asked James to come talk about antigen testing for COVID-19 and then, then also cover the immunoglobulin response after one has been exposed to COVID-19 with the, the terms COVID-naive and COVID-competence to be explained. Uh, so we look forward to hearing, hearing a little bit more from James today. All right, James, I am a new internist. I don't know much about COVID-19 testing. Can you kind of just give us the very basics, the building blocks about what tests are out there, what we use, and maybe some of the components that you look for when you're selecting a test that we're going to be used at throughout our system? Okay, well, I can focus on first the, the tests that we have available within our system and they kind of talk about what's on the market, what's to come. So when COVID first started, we didn't have, you know, a, a test to test for COVID. Those first were available through the, through the CDC, and then they were available at the state health departments. But those were all PCR-based tests. A lot of the vendors got in line and developed their own tests using the viral genome sequences that were available through the FDA or the CDC. And now we utilize, within our system, we use two PCR tests that are used for direct detection of the virus. The first test that we use is through our reference lab AEL, and that is a PCR test on the Roche COVID-19 test. Basically, it tests for viral RNA, the presence of the virus. Uh, the second test that we use in-house at a limited number of our facilities is through Cepheid. And it's also a PCR test, and it does the same thing. It tests for the viral RNA that's present in, in the virus. And Henry, I, I know you've done a lot of kind of the operations work and strategy behind when we would use each test, but just for the audience to kind of remind them of why we have this set up. So we have that, the in-house test, the, the Cepheid test available, and we also have the reference lab send-out test. What, are the, what is the thought uh, behind when to use each one, and how are we using currently at Baptist? Jake, if we back it up a little bit and, and, and to pick up on what James alluded to, we started out this, this whole adventure for this pandemic with limited test avail availability. And the turnaround time on test initially uh, was three, five days or more, uh, which didn't meet any of the clinical needs that we had, especially when you look at the acute care events that take place. With the improvement in our reference lab turnaround time, which is which ranges between 24 to 36 hours, it did permit us to think more about acute care events. However, there were then those events that take place on a daily basis across our health system that needed something more rapid than that. And here's why: 
uh, as someone comes through the door with a dissecting aortic aneurysm, there, there, there's no time to delay. This person needs to go through the diagnostic steps that prepare them for the operating room. And if you can imagine the, the way and the cost and the expense and the complexity of controlling aerosolization of a COVID-19 patient through those various care sites, ideally we'd like to know that this person who's coming in with a dissecting aneurysm is COVID positive or COVID negative with great reliability so that we can protect our employees, frankly, our workforce, but then allow that person through uh, with, without the, the usual encumbrances that are necessary to protect every, every person around them with, if they do indeed have COVID-19. So if we had a one-hour test that was in-house, then we could seamlessly move patients uh, who are coming in, whether that be a code STEMI or large vessel occlusion with a stroke or dissecting aneurysm, uh, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, active labor, uh, a, a lot of scenarios where we need to know the status of this patient as quickly as we can as they move through the house. Other cases where we do have the luxury of a 24-36 hour turnaround time, such as elective surgery, or other medical conditions such as an exacerbation of COPD or heart failure, there is, there is the, the luxury, if you will, of having a 24-36 hour turnaround time. So the two really do help complement and cover all the clinical needs we have in the acute care setting. Great. So, so James, we have the, the PCR test, and as you said, that, that's telling us who's infected now. But we also, you know, I'm also hearing about the antibody tests that are out there, as well as the antigen tests. Can you just explain kind of the difference between the PCR, the antigen, and the antibody tests, and what we have available at Baptist right now? Sure, sure. Let me uh, back up a little bit on the timeline. You know, ideally, all of these tests would have been available at the same time. Unfortunately, they were not. Uh, the first test that came onto the market for us was a test that's through our uh, reference lab, and that's a high-volume throughput test, and, and it worked for a time, but going back to Dr. Sullivan's uh, comments, the need for uh, you know, a short turnaround time uh, test was high. And fortunately, uh, we at a limited uh, number of our facilities already had uh, some CEPHID instruments and CEPHID uh, brought on the ability to, uh, to test. Uh, they received their emergency use authorization and we were able to acquire uh, reagents to test for that. So that, that test on the instrument is about a 45 minute turnaround time test. So it's it's great to have that ability to test within our facilities. That's the PCR test. Uh, the next test that we're uh, bringing online that we have limited availability in within some of our facilities uh, is the antibody test. Uh, we can we have that availability for all of our facilities through our reference lab, and we're bringing that online at some of our facilities. Eventually, hopefully by the end of July, we will have that antibody test within the house at all of our facilities. But the antibody test, basically, there's several different versions of it. Some of them test specifically for the antibody that was developed for the spike protein on the, on the virus. And uh, they're, they're very reliable, high specificity, high reliability uh, on the antibody test, uh, short turnaround time, you know, but it's limited. It's the ability to tell uh, with the antibody test if someone is infected, uh, you really need the PCR test uh, for that as well, because someone uh, with a positive antibody uh, unless it's specific for IgG, uh, you know, they could be in the early phases of their infection or they could have already developed some form of immunity. 
uh, for that antibody. But we're seeing limited use of that across our system. Hopefully that will pick up uh, and we will be able to um, identify those patients that have uh, antibody to this virus. Yeah, and, and the concept of immunity, I'll get Henry to talk about this in, in a little bit, you know, has really evolved. You know, early on, I think there was a very strong hope you know, that we could start using the antibody positivity for immunity passports and things of that nature. I, I still think there is some countries that are doing that and some places that are doing that. We're certainly interested in seeing the results of that. But, there, you know, obviously, whether or not that person that has antibodies is going to be, whether or not they'll be neutralizing antibodies and be immune to a subsequent infection is unknown until they finish all these trials. There have been some recent studies that have come out that have shown some you know, protection in, in rhesus monkeys, I believe. And then a lot of people are hoping that it's very similar to SARS and, and MERS, which do have neutralizing antibodies and give some protection for around a year and in some cases and up to two or three years, I think, for MERS. But Henry, can you just give us an idea of what we're thinking right now as far as patient or employee comes in and they have COVID-19 positive antibodies? Uh, how are we thinking about that as an organization and using that? Well, Jake, so when someone does develop antibodies, it depends upon your immunologic response, whether you develop an adequate antibody titer. And we're looking to the lab to tell us what is the the lab value, what, what's the dilution value that renders this person immunocompetent against COVID-19. And again, it's an IgG antibody. If we can find that someone has masked uh, enough of an immunologic response, then we feel as if they are what we are terming COVID competent, meaning that their ability to get reinfected uh, is negligible and they may come and go within COVID environments with uh, not the concern that they, that they had when they are either naive, meaning they've not, they have been infected but have not, not amassed uh, enough of an immunologic response, or they are COVID negative, meaning they've never seen the, the, um, the virus nor the nor an antigen response. So if we can find that there are enough of our workforce is converting to COVID competent, then that's reassurance that we can allow these, these personnel to work without fear of a medium or high risk exposure that would require them to step aside. We're concerned about a surge and, and the effect that uh, exposure would place on our workforce and restrict our workforce to be present to take care of an increased number of inpatient cases. How long do we feel that someone who has masked uh, a, a significant immunologic response can feel comfortable being relatively immune? There are a lot of, there are a lot of what ifs, what ifs, but we're, we're, we're putting the end date on this at six months. I know, like you said, there is some preliminary work saying nine months, maybe 12 months, but just to be safe, we are saying that if you demonstrate competence uh, at a particular date, June the 4th, then you are uh, considered immunocompetent until December the 4th, at which time we would, we would recommend that you get retested for, for your titer. That makes sense to me. I feel, you know, after those discussions, I feel pretty good about when to use the PCR and when to use the antibody test and what I can potentially do with each of those. The antigen test to me is kind of a, a gray area. James, can you talk a little bit more about the antigen test and what, what gap is that test filling for us? Yeah, I'll tell you, we're not using that test uh, within our system yet. 
There is a company that we use. Uh, they're developing uh, their tests. They're telling me any day now they'll have emergency use authorization approved. Everyone listening to this, this is the one thing I want them to remember from this podcast. Baptist does not use any test for COVID uh, that has not received uh, emergency use authorization for the FDA. Uh, we want to make sure that our tests have are high, highly reliable and they've, they've been through that vetted process. So our PCR tests, our antibody tests, we use only uh, FDA EAU approved tests. There are tons of tests out there on the market, specifically antibody tests that are have not received emergency use authorization. You can literally go on Craigslist and buy COVID-19 antibody tests. So many of our physicians have probably received calls, emails, texts of someone trying to sell them an antibody test. I would caution them to, if you're going to go into that business, if you're going to buy that test for your, for your clinic or your lab, read the EAU, uh, make sure that it has been approved by the FDA because there are a lot of uh, unscrupulous uh, individuals out there trying to sell uh, low quality uh, antibody tests. Back to the antigen test. So the antigen test, uh, test for the nucleocapsid protein, it's a, it's a very high turnaround time test. Typically, you know, we have a lot of antigen tests on the market out there right now that are run in physician offices. Uh, they test for, for flu and uh, RSV and different types of viruses. Uh, and they're, they're really good. The ones that we're looking at right now are the ones that are being getting their emergency use authorization. The problem with that particular test is that it has a, a kind of a low sensitivity. This nucleocapsid protein uh, for the COVID-19, what I'm learning is similar to the previous coronavirus outbreaks in that you may get a <clears throat> false positive, but particularly the false negatives are, are high for this test. So we're looking at uh, the, this antigen test the positives will be good, but if we get a negative, we may have to do a PCR test on a, a person that is symptomatic and shows a negative. We may have to turn around and do a PCR test on that just to confirm it. So uh, we're doing some correlation studies uh, with the antigen test versus our PCR test to see the reliability of that test before we bring it into our system. Gotcha. So that test would be something you could have in a doctor's office, something more point of care, rapid turnaround time. But the downside right now that you're seeing is that uh, sensitivity is, is fairly low and there's some false negatives. Yes. So literally, you, you, you know, you swab the patient, put the swab into the instrument. Fifteen minutes later, you get a result. But, you know, it's that one symptomatic patient that you get a negative result on that you have to worry about because they go out and start another outbreak. And I guess that's an important point. So for both the, the PCR test and the antigen test, you're doing nasal swabs. Um, we didn't talk about how to collect the specimens and the antibody test, you're, you're taking that from blood draw. Is that correct? Correct. And so you, know, you spoke a little bit about the specificity and sensitivities for some of these tests. What sort of metrics are you following on a daily basis uh, as part of our COVID-19 uh, progression goes? You know, What sort of things are you looking for uh, how, how are we showing that we're trending in the right direction as far as combating COVID-19? So we have, uh, we have some wonderful people, Baptists, who have created a daily dashboard for us that shows our percent positive antibody tests and also our percent positive PCR tests on a daily, almost a real-time uh, basis for our system. And we've been able to monitor that uh, since very early in, I guess, in early March. Uh, we've been monitoring that for, seems like, forever now. Uh, but we have seen, uh, we're seeing 
for the antibody test, now we've only done limited antibody tests, but for our system, we're about 11% positive on the, on the antibody test. And that means that you know, of all the patients we've tested, 11% have had antibodies? Have tested positive for antibodies. Okay. Now these, these are PCR positive antigen studies that then we tested to see, did they, did they elicit an immune response with an antibody study? That's a great point to make, Dr. Sullivan, because the majority of people that are, you know, that are getting antibody tests have most of them previously tested uh, positive for, for the PCR, and we're trying to confirm that they developed the antibody. So we haven't gone out and done a mass population study of antibody. So that 11% that doesn't represent entire population. It just represents a specific population of our patients. Gotcha. Yeah, that's important to talk about because, you know, L.A. and I think New York and, and all of them have done community antibody uh, screening, and they found more in the range of 2% to 4%, I think, in, in California, 10 or more percent in, in the New York area. We can't really compare our rate of 11 to those because we're mainly confirming PCR positive patients are developing the antibodies. So I we've, we've only found about, we've only, I'm looking at the data now, we've only done about 2,300 since we've started the antibody test. We're still very early, like I said, earlier in this podcast that, you know, majority of all of our antibodies we've had to route through the reference lab, but we're bringing that online at our facilities and hopefully we'll see that number go up. Yeah. All right. James, let me just ask you a couple of questions about that percent positive rate. What does that tell me as a clinician if I'm looking at a population of patients and uh, you tell me the percent positive for that, for that population? And you know, I understand that you're following that over time. What are you hoping to, to see as far as trends go with that? And what does that tell us? Now we're hoping to see that number go down. You know, we look at percent positive in two ways. We look at percent positive on the date that the result of the test was resulted. And then we also look at percent positive on the date that the specimen was actually collected. So what was the percent positive of those patients that were collected on a particular day? And then what was the percent positive of the results that came out on a particular day? We also, we also monitor the, the actual number of positives, uh, not just the percent. So we're looking for that to go down. I mean, early, early in our, uh, back in 1st of April, mid-April, uh, we were, you know, the 14, 15% range and we've slowly seen that go down sometimes we would have a little uh a valley you know but then it's followed by a peak and then it goes down and another small peak and then it goes back up another peak but then it, it's going back down so hopefully we will you know our goal is to see that overall percentage rate uh, drop down the best case scenario would be to zero but the next best case scenario would be a, a very low percentage that kind of plateaus and that certainly corresponds to our testing program, because early on we were just testing symptomatic people or those that had traveled to high-risk countries or had contact. But now that we're testing everybody coming in, we would expect that number to, to drop significantly. Henry, can you touch a little bit on our, our screening program for patients, um, just how you view it as, as going and some of the challenges we've had with it? Gladly. Uh, what we wanted to do early on in this process, and I, I referenced this a little bit is uh, earlier, is uh, those patients are coming into the acute care environment. Uh, we would like to know uh, if this person is COVID positive or negative. And, and the, the concern is that there may be in each of our communities a certain percent of asymptomatic COVID positive patients, minimal symptoms, if any, who are coming into a healthcare uh, setting, whether that be a clinic or 
a hospital setting, uh, and uh, then shedding the virus and exposing uh, others, not just family and friends, but a workforce to, to viral shedding. So for all patients now, not just those who are coming in with, with COVID symptoms, for all patients coming into the acute care environment and into various ambulatory care settings, we're testing all. And when we do this, we're finding a surprisingly high number, frankly, of those patients who are asymptomatic yet are being found to have a COVID-positive test. That does help us put these people into an isolation environment that keeps it from keeps the virus from spreading throughout uh, any any setting. Uh, and then, if you do that, then Jake, you're you're able to protect our our workforce. So I, I view that as a, as a great step forward. If you think about patients who are coming in asymptomatic and needing a surgical procedure or any invasive procedure, even thinking about colonoscopy or laparoscopy, uh, in any of those, the aerosolization of the virus can expose uh, a significant number of people, whether they be anesthesia or anybody performing the procedure themselves. So it's critical that we know the status of these patients as they go through the various procedures that most do when they when they come to the hospital. And Dr. Lancaster, just raw numbers, when we first started testing, we were testing probably four to 500 a day. And, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, we've tested over 2,000 a day. So that, that testing has been expanding exponentially. Yeah, back to Henry's point about the surprisingly large number we're finding, you know, of all of the patients that are currently admitted to the hospital right now with COVID-19, 28 to 33 of those patients were found with this asymptomatic screening program. You know, our rate for positives with that asymptomatic screening program, it's hovered right around 1.8 to 2% of all the patients we've tested and actually have a much higher rate with our younger patients. So those younger than age 21 have a much higher 5 or 5% 5 or more chance of having COVID-19, which is, you know, consistent with what you're seeing nationally as far as the asymptomatic uh, shedding in that population. But that, that's very interesting. I think a particular population, Jake, back to that demographic you just referenced, are our OB patients. And a lot of the literature is reporting that they have an unusually high asymptomatic uh, rate. Uh, and for those patients who are coming in, and we have an opportunity to test them prior to coming in for, say, an, an induction of labor or perhaps a scheduled cesarean section, it does allow us to identify them and put them in special care units. It doesn't change the care that they receive, but it does help to protect the environment from, from exposure. All right, I'm just gonna ask one more question because I know we have to wrap up. Y'all are some busy people and getting on y'all's calendar is challenging. Um, but James, could you just give us a hint about what sort of things we're looking at as far as lab testing goes at Baptist over the coming weeks and months? Well, the, the ultimate goal is to have the ability to do all PCR testing and all antibody testing uh, within our facilities. That will give us a short turnaround time on the PCR and the antibody test. Uh, there are some things out there on the horizon, uh, saliva testing uh, that we're looking into that would, uh, would be easier to collect. You wouldn't have to do the nasal swabs, provides a little bit more stability, but that's out there on the horizon. Right now, we're focused on uh, getting the results uh, back to our caregivers as soon as possible. And that means getting the testing ability in all of our facilities, uh, even some of our uh, our clinics, uh, point of care testing, to get that information back to our care provider. So that's our ultimate goal, and hopefully we'll have that achieved uh, by the end of this summer. 
That's great. Now, I recently read an article about the detection of COVID-19 in the sewers. And so are, is there any chance that we'll be bringing in stool samples from patients and, and employees to, for you to test? I think saliva is a little bit easier to collect than, than stool. All right. <laughs> and Henry, any last words from you as far as our testing program goes and, and hopes for the future? No, Jake, I, I think, I think uh, it is, it'll be status quo. Uh, we're learning a lot by testing our employees and understanding uh, by doing testing of what, we, what we've labeled as our, our high-risk exposure employees, it, it's remarkable the, the low um, antigen positive rate in, in, that, in that group, which is reassuring. The rate currently is running at about 0.25%, which is lower than what we feel like is the general asymptomatic population rate. Uh, and it does point to the, the safe use of our PPE across the system. So we're, we're grateful to see this very low prevalence rate among our high-risk exposure employees. We'll probably be doing some other follow-up testing of them, and some special units may, re may require testing more frequently. All right. Uh, thank you, James, for joining us today. It was very enlightening, and uh, I'm sure our physicians and, and providers really appreciate this knowledge. And remember that you can earn CME for listening to these episodes. The process for doing that is available in the show notes of this podcast. Please join us again next week, where we will go into more detail about the treatment of COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you.